the human condition gets misdiagnosed and particularly how it comes up with the trans issue is that basically the the pain of a broken limb is getting diagnosed as the broken limb itself you know gender dysphoria the gender incongruence the struggle wanting to be the opposite sex it isn't what's actually it's not the root cause the root cause is just the humanity, the pain, the struggle. Like all of these things are hard. I was bombarded with all these messages of, oh, well, you're in pain and it has something to do with gender. Well, you must be trans. You see these people just projecting a wonderful, happy life with nothing wrong. And you're like, oh, that, that must be the answer. When really, I mean, all they're selling is a morphine to fix, you know, fix the pain of a broken bone. Yet they're letting the bones stay separated to rot. You must be some kind of therapist. I am some kind of therapist, and I'm about to take you on a journey through the inner wilderness. I've invited brilliant guests from all walks of life to join me as we investigate, illuminate, and inspire transformation in ourselves, intimate relationships, and the social ecosystems we are constellated in. What you are about to hear may surprise you, so hang on to your earbuds for a hefty dose of sanity in a chaotic world. I am Stephanie Wynn, a licensed marriage and family therapist, branching out and building bridges between psychology and everything else under the sun. It's my honor to have you along for the ride. Let's get started. Today, my guest is Torin Danowski. He is a man in his mid-30s who's been on quite the wild ride, a journey of transing and detransing, a journey of losing and regaining faith and rediscovering himself in a number of ways. He's been healing and finding his way. Torin has an interesting and unique story. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you know I'm very interested in the stories of uh, detransitioners or people who feel that they've been harmed by so-called gender-affirming care. Torin has shared his stories on a few different podcasts now. And I'm excited to dive in and see what we discover today. Torin, thank you for sharing your story and being here with me today. Yes, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, so I want to kind of front load the interesting, <laughs> one of the more interesting parts of your story, because um, I haven't actually had a chance to discuss this with very many people yet. But uh, you said something that piqued my interest. Mm -hmm. Now, I've I've been noting for a while in my internet dialogues that I keep hearing anecdotes from people who've been through the whole transing and detransing approach to trying to find themselves in life who feel that psychedelics played a role in that. Yep. And you said that they did for you. And um, I haven't really discussed that much in this podcast. We might have touched on it a little bit in my episode with Laura Becker. Mm -hmm. um, but can we start in the middle of your story? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> can we start with that? What happened? Yeah, um, I, I think it's probably a good place to start because it is sort of, uh, it is in the middle, but it's sort of like also the new beginning. Um, the The psychedelic experience was kind of the the start of, of something new, and I'm still sort of on that journey from, from there. Um, so, yeah, this was uh, probably about a year ago. I had uh, gotten... Uh, pretty heavily, heavily involved in politics, um, with the libertarian party, um, of the U S and, uh, they, uh, they're known, um, for really pushing things like psychedelics, uh, decriminalization of marijuana, all of these things. And you could talk to any number of people in the party. Um, and so many people had wonderful things to say about psychedelics and the effect, uh, it had 
that psychedelics had on their mental health and that sort of thing. And these were people that all always took it very seriously. You know, when I beforehand, I always thought of psychedelics as, well, let's just go drop acid, party, have a good time, be sort of degenerate. Um, which the you know the libertarian party can kind of go that way as well, but then uh, most uh, most of them were like actually this is a tool. This is there's a reason why um, other cultures, other um, you know m- medicine traditions and whatnot have pursued psychedelics, and it helps with mental health. So as someone who has dealt with things like gender dysphoria, depression, anxiety, um, I've gone through some. Uh, fairly traumatic events in life that piqued my interest. So this was probably a couple of years ago. I did clinical ketamine treatments. They felt great, um, and I thought there was some benefit, but I hadn't. I don't. It, it didn't. Didn't feel like it solved everything. I was actually in the middle of my transition at that point, and it felt sort of affirming and good. And but it was just it was kind of too expensive. You know, it's something like. Six or seven hundred dollars for a couple of sessions, and I just like I can't, I can't afford this. I can't keep doing it. Um, they want me to keep doing it, and I, I, I just, I just can't. So, fast forward a few months, I'm heavily struggling with with my decision to transition. I was considering quitting, turning around, going back the other direction, and I had a pretty profound experience. Um, I won't get into details on this, but I had a, had a dream that. Uh, I was, I had a dream that I was missing out on something I deeply wanted in my life because of my decision to transition. And that disturbed me deeply. And I went into sort of a mental funk for like two to three weeks. And I had a buddy who sort of called me up and say, you know, Hey, I noticed you're struggling. I am too. Um, I know you have experience with psychedelics and I dabbled some a little bit more after the ketamine. And he said, do you want to try to do something like this together? We'll get someone, someone's help and, and sort of guidance on this, and we'll, we'll go through this process together. And so I went out, uh, went out to his house one, uh, one Friday night, and we were hanging out. We decided to you know, take, a, take a nice little trip, and I was processing, processing that dream that I had, processing the decisions that I made, I had already started to sort of come to a conclusion that detransition was the right path. And as I, um, gosh, this is is, like, I I wish I would have written all of this down, but as, as I was in the middle of the trip, I, I suddenly started feeling reconnected to my past self. Um, the self that I felt like, had slowly died over the years because of some events and some trauma and some bu- and, a, and abuse in life. And I felt fully connected to who I was growing up and who I felt like I wanted to be as a person. And so as I'm feeling these reconnections and I start sort of coming down off of the, the experience, it was almost like cemented in my mind. I'm like, I'm done. I am, I'm done with this transition. This transition is a mask. This, this whole trying to live, um, as a woman is, it's not me. I don't want it. I'm done with it. Um, I wasn't, I didn't, I feel a little bit more repulsed by it now, just having gone through some things. But back then it was more just like, man, this isn't right. This just isn't me. Like I can be fully myself 
And I don't have to take another hormone injection, another anything. I can be fully myself today and just be Torin. Um, it, it's psychedelics, yeah, it played a, played a massive role in just sort of cementing that. Wow. Which psychedelic was this? Um, it was psilocybin. Okay, yep. probably the most common. Yep. And do you know what dosage you were on just out of curiosity? Uh, I think it was a pretty standard dose of what was an ounce, was it an ounce, half an ounce, or I don't know, it was like three, three and a half milligrams, something like that. Um, three and a half grams. Three and a half grams, sorry, yeah. It's been a while. I haven't I haven't done them. Pretty large dose. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how big you are, but. Yeah. Okay. Um, and that was your first time taking mushrooms? Um, Second. When was the first? The first was a couple of months prior. Um, hmm. I had done that after a libertarian party event and had just taken them. I think I had taken like half that dose and. I don't think anything really, I didn't have much of an experience. I was pretty exhausted. I was tired. It felt good. I had a little bit of like a euphoric experience. So I was like, this feels good. Um, but maybe I should try something a little bit, uh, you know, a stronger dose to have maybe a deeper experience that time around. So the whole concept of set and setting. Yep. Anyone who's in the world of uh, understanding the kind of do's and don'ts of psychedelics now, <laughs> of course I have to say that I am not speaking as a medical authority. I am not recommending anything. And if you're listening to this podcast, you're not my client or unless, I mean, you could, you could be a client of mine who decides to listen to that. My God, I don't have any control over that. But my point is this is a podcast. This is not medical advice. However, this is a very hot topic right now. The power of psychedelics for better or worse to change the brain, to support neuroplasticity. And so in the dialogues that people have about potential therapeutic or recreational uses of these powerful mind-altering um, substances, set and setting is a really important concept. So for those who are just hearing this for the first time, I mean, Torin's nodding along knowingly, but it's about your mindset and your environment, um, your social environment, your physical environment, because psychedelics have the power to really open up your mind to a profound degree. And whatever is lurking underneath the surface, they will they will highlight your awareness of that. So if you're in a dirty or cluttered environment or around people you don't feel safe with, um, these can really impact your experience. So it sounds like the first time the set and setting was a lot less intentional. Mm -hmm. You were tired. It, and then the second time you went in with this mindset with a trusted friend that we're going to unpack some stuff. Oh yeah. <laughs> and, and so it sounds like at that time you were really ready. You were, you were looking for something yep. to help you work through everything that was going on underneath the surface. And that large dose of mushrooms that you took with that trusted friend in that with that particular intention in mind um, was a big breakthrough for you. You went into it thinking that you were having some doubts about whether this choice to trans was really right for you. Um, you'd been searching for yourself and you said that you had had this really emotionally impactful dream about uh, the pain of missing out on something you most deeply desire. Mm -hmm. And so the way that you described your this powerful second experience you had with psilocybin, um, you said that you felt connected to the past self, to the 
authentic, natural version of you that had been, let's say, covered over or damaged by certain events in your life Mm -hmm. that have been socially hurtful to you, perhaps. And I think we'll get into some of that stuff, especially your relationship with your faith, which is also a super interesting story. Um, But you also said connecting to who you wanted to be. So it's almost like this cord throughout time between your past self and your future self. And this moment in which you were identifying as trans, you've described uh, transing as a distraction for you. Um, So it's kind of like this little blip in time on, on the much greater trajectory of who you've always been, who you are at your core, your true nature, your search for yourself, and also your capacity for growth. And I love that you said those in basically the same sentence, because finding the balance between those two is so important for well-being. Jordan Peterson talks about how some of the sort of self-help stuff is a little too self-aggrandizing sometimes. This idea that you should love and, yourse- love and accept yourself just as you are doesn't always leave room for the possibility of who you might become. But you, in that one moment, felt this profound sense of self-love and self-acceptance for who you are at your core, but also a sense of who you might become. It's a, what a beautiful marriage of the two forces. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's such an interesting thing to think back on um, because I'll, I'll tell people a lot that I, you know, I had an experience. I was a, um, I was a Christian missionary uh, in Southeast Asia back in 2012. And a lot of that time I felt like I was discovering who I was, what made me tick as a person and kind of starting to figure out like, what, what do, who do I want to be? What do I want to do? And it was in that time um where I was starting to have that, uh, you know, for the first time in my life, having some of that like self-love and self-care and all of that. And then I was also trying to challenge myself to growth. It was during that time was maybe, maybe the first and only time in my life up until that point where I didn't struggle with gender at all. Um, it wasn't even a thing on my mind because I was, um, I don't want this to sound like too, uh, I don't know, too prideful or too like crazy, but it was like, it was almost like I was finally like loving myself. Like I really like who I am. I like who I am as Torn. I like who I am as a person. I like the things that I'm gifted at. Um, no, I don't like my faults, my downfalls. Somehow, sometimes I'm a bit rebellious and a bit brash and abrasive. And I don't like that. I want to improve on that. Um, but it it's like I had this profound and deep sense of self-acceptance that I had never had before in my life. And so because of that, during that period, that one year period of my life, I didn't I didn't struggle with gender. Um, it just wasn't it just wasn't a thing. But then that came back and it was it was really profound because even as you were kind of telling my story back to me a little bit there. I was, I was just remembering some details of that day when I had had the set and setting just right. I mean, I'd spent all day, like I had fasted, I had worked out pretty intensely that day, was doing all the things that um, I really loved doing. And one of the coolest things that I did that day was I got in the, uh, in the mail an album, um, a vinyl album from a band that had released that album in 2012. The album was called Phoenix, um, as in the bird, as in you know something rising from the ashes. 
And I sat down that day. I picked up my guitar probably for the first time in years and started strumming a tune and wrote, um, wrote a mosaic of that entire album um, in one song. This whole like Phoenix album, this Phoenix theme. And like going into that trip, I was, I was starting to like feel like myself again. Cause like back, back in the day I was, I was, um, I was playing music. I was writing music. I was, um, I had never done it before, but I was leading worship at churches. Uh, I was, I was being creative. There was, there was a creative part of me that had sort of died over time that had started coming out that very coming back to life and coming out that very day. Um, of my psychedelic trip. And yeah, that trip, I, like I said, I I went into it open. I went into it searching and there was just this, yeah, this powerful connection of I'm happy and content with who I am now. And I'm happy and content with the direction that I could be going. If I just keep walking that direction rather than trying to put on this mask. Hmm. Well, now let's go to the beginning (laughs) because you've uh, touched on, you've said that you struggle with gender dysphoria for most of your life. You described this year that you spent in Southeast Asia, which was such a mixed blessing of a time for you. And we haven't gotten into that part yet because on the one hand, you felt more at peace with yourself than ever before. On the other hand, there was some spiritual abuse, some things that went on in your missionary work that gave you a lot to unpack down the line. So I'm curious to get to that part of your story, mm-hmm. but I'm imagining that our listeners are like, wait a minute, this guy with a super deep voice. And if they're watching your <laughs> thick beard too, yep. I mean, you, you look, you come across very masculine, right? You don't, you're not the image someone has in their mind of a man who might've struggled mm-hmm. with gender dysphoria his whole life. So help us understand the origins of this for you. When do you first remember having a problem with being male or imagining that life would be better if you were female? I don't know if I've been able to pinpoint um, a specific time, but I mean, I can just remember sort of even really young, just the first times noticing the differences between male and female, like something, something was just off. I mean, I don't think I ever especially at a younger age, I don't think I ever felt like there was something wrong with me, but there was a strong pull towards sort of the feminine that I couldn't really reconcile. Because somehow growing up, I had this intense idea in my head of what it meant to be a man or a woman. Um, When I talk about being creative when I was in Southeast Asia, being creative to me for some reason wasn't um, wasn't really a masculine thing. Uh, for some reason, I had it. I eventually got it in my head that oh, if I would just transition, that would free me up to be be more creative. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know why that was. Uh, I, there's just something that got stuck in my head about being a man, being stoic, being rational, being logical, and. I kind of excel at a lot of those things. Um, I can, I can be stoic. I can calm my nerves, and nobody will know what I'm thinking. Uh, I'm a I'm a data analyst by trade. Um, like I'm very rational, very logical. I was one of those kids growing up that didn't need to study. I just school was easy. Um, 
But I also had this side of me that I never felt like I could really express, which was the creative side. It was things like writing music or singing or um, photography and things that I didn't explore until much later on in life because for some reason I felt like I couldn't do that. And I also had like a really bad perfectionist streak growing up again because I was gifted at school. Like, oh, I can't do anything. I need to, I need to get straight A's. I need to do everything right. Um, home also growing up wasn't uh, a safe or secure place for me. Not, not because my parents were like horrible parents or, um, you know, outwardly abusive. They, you know, they were doing a lot of the best they could with what they were given. They grew up in a very, um, very impoverished, difficult, um, background. Both my parents had. And, but for some reason, like my successes, what I was good at, um, the things that I wanted to do, such as being creative, weren't, weren't ever really fostered or celebrated at home. It always kind of felt like, uh, who I was were the things that I sort of failed at. Um, I felt like I was always getting trouble at home. I was constantly being punished, was constantly grounded. Whereas the minute I stepped outside of home, I was always the good kid. I was good in school, got great grades. Um, <laughs> one time, one time in my entire life that I actually get in, in trouble at school. I never got had a detention, nothing, because that would have that would have crushed me. But one time when I was in second grade, my t- my teacher sent me out in the hall for talking in class, which mortified me because I don't talk in class. I, I follow the rules, and. Um, she forgot I was out there and thought I was absent because I never had gotten trouble <laughs> for that. So I sat in the, I sat outside for like, uh, I sat outside in the hall for like two or three hours. It wasn't really, I mean, it was a funny experience to me then and it's still funny now, but it just kind of showed there's a huge, just for me internally, there was a huge dichotomy between who I was outwardly and who I was inwardly. And that was outside the home, inside the home, outside how I expressed myself, inside how I wanted to express myself. And there was just something, yeah, just something as I got older. So as I'm getting into my, you know, you know, third, fourth grade, hitting adolescence, there was just some sort of draw to an almost like worship of femininity that um, it was like, man, I, I don't like how I'm presenting in the world in general. So there's, there's a dichotomy between how I presented and how I wanted to present. And somehow I got it sort of stuck in my mind that I couldn't express myself to the world as the man that I was growing up to be. And I needed to be something different. And I think there's like a lot of other things that went on there. I mean, my parents became Christians when I was like uh, five or six years old. This is in the mid nineties. So I kind of watched them become Christians and become religious. They, uh, I think they did what any good parent would want to do and want to protect their kids from the struggles that they had. So at the time in the late nineties, one of the fad Christian books was I Kiss Dating Goodbye um, by Joshua Harris. And it was this, you know, thesis on purity and why dating is horrible. Courtship is um, the only way to go. 
And so as I'm, you know, hitting adolescence and kind of growing up and, you know, wanting, wanting to have a relationship, I'm attracted to women. I had no, like, it went from my parents, you know, wanting to protect me from, from going all the dangerous paths they went down to almost having just no guidance and feeling like my own, my own manhood, my own sexuality was a bad thing. And that, like, I couldn't express that. I couldn't connect with sort of the feminine energy the way I wanted to, even like personally or externally with somebody else. And so there almost just became this like obsession of like, okay, so if I can't be who I want to be as a man, I can't or don't know how to connect with a woman the way I would want to emotionally, physically, all the above. I don't know. It just became this thing. Well, the, uh, the obvious answer is maybe I should just try to live as one. Um, I don't, I don't know. Um, a lot of that's still sort of fuzzy, uh, about how that all came to be, but those are some of the threads I'm starting to put together. Well, it's, it's fascinating what you describe about the, these different parts of you. And, and I think we all need those parts in order to be whole. I think the most fascinating, interesting, well-rounded people are ones who have a blend of logic and reason with faith or emotion or creativity. You could call it masculine and feminine. Uh, you know, personally, a lot of the detransitioners I've talked to, um, as well as some of the most fascinating people on our side who are kind of trying to protect people from going down that path all have struggled to find a well-rounded integration of the masculine and feminine energies within ourselves. Mm -hmm. I recently talked with Megan Murphy about this, that, you know, Megan's got a pretty well-integrated masculine side and I've, I've got a pretty well-integrated masculine side too. And, and women like us look back and say, Oh, I would have been one of these kids. Right. And, and I know not everyone who's gone through detransing appreciates hearing that because maybe it sounds dismissive of your experience, but I really do relate so much. And what you're going through just sounds like what sort of um, a gifted person would struggle with that you, you were gifted with this. I mean, you seem like somebody who probably has a very high IQ. Um, school came easy for you. You're very logical and rational and and but you feel like there's this missing part of you that you can't access, but you know it's there. And what you're seeing modeled for you is that that gets channeled through the feminine, through women and girls. But you're not seeing a path for you. Your parents didn't provide it. Your church didn't provide it. Your academic environment didn't provide it. It didn't recognize the inside of this smart kid who aced everything without trying was also a sensitive child with aesthetic sensibilities. And so you're looking for how do I integrate my creativity, my femininity, my sensitivity, my um, spirituality, my own spirituality, not just the, the authoritarian version of spirituality that's being given to me through the church. And, and then it's combined with this. Um, now I have problems with the term sex positivity and the term sex negativity, but for mm -hmm. lack of a better phrase, sex negativity um, through the sort of, um, anti-dating, uh, messaging. So on the one hand, it's like, you're not 
you're not being raised in a woke environment by any means, but at the same time, you are kind of receiving some messages about, for lack of a better way of putting it, masculinity being toxic. Yep. That that you, as a man, your desire to connect with the feminine is something that is profane, that is anti-Christian, not sacred. It's not in align with the tenets of your faith. So then you feel even more blocked because, unlike, I mean, let me just expound on it this way. Getting As I'm getting a sense of who you were as a young man, it sounds like you were quite precocious. And while a lot of heterosexual adolescent boys are dealing with really strong sexual urges and they're not necessarily um, experiencing the most, um, let's say, elevated, uh, noble expression of romantic feelings toward girls, it does sound like for you from an early age, your attraction to females was not purely lust-driven. It was also that sort of more wise, mature stance that I think is more common amongst older males with some life experience where the desire to connect with the feminine is a recognition that something in my soul needs something that a woman has to offer, mm. something a woman expresses. And, and I think that the way that the masculine and feminine can complement each other are sort of like a yin, yin and yang, right? Where the feminine expresses outwardly something that the man feels deep in his heart and the masculine expresses outwardly something the woman feels deep in her heart. So it seems like you were precocious and you were looking for that wholeness and that completion that maybe in a different environment, you were the sort of guy who could have really fallen head over heels in love with his first girlfriend and been a very doting, safe, nurturing boyfriend at the age of 15 or so. <laughs> That's the impression I get of you as a precocious young man. But it just seems like you weren't really seen by anyone in your environment. Your parents come from this poverty background, so there's sort of a scarcity, sort of a survival. Um, it sounds like their relationship with religion was kind of coming from that, mm -hmm. that fear-based place that it's so easy for people to, to go to with religion. And so then it just seemed like you're trying to connect with the feminine. There's no clear outlet. You're not being supported artistically or spirituality. Your romantic feelings are being kind of demonized. So then it's just like, oh, if I could just be a woman feels like the only way that you know how to express that. Am I getting that right? Yeah. I mean, I think you're you're hitting the nail on the head. Um, yeah, you've probably observed a lot in your day is what I'm gathering, because if you could pick up on all that, uh, it's awesome. Um, but uh, yeah, there's just even even something I'm learning about myself now. I, I just retook the, uh, the MBTI, and I know that that's not the greatest thing in the world, but it's it's changed so much for me. And then I, I had myself sort of pegged. And I can look back and I can say, I know I had myself pegged wrong, say, 10 years ago, because I answered answered the questions the way that I felt best now and know that I felt similar, not exactly the same 10 years ago, but I was like an extreme INTJ. Um, or yes, I, I was extreme INTJ, like extreme on everything. Um, but I came back as kind of extreme on the N and the J still, um, but the opposite, like extreme on the F. And then it's right smack in the middle on the I and the E. And because I, I say that just to point out, like even, even back then, I can look back and I'm starting to, starting to realize 
that was quite, quite a good description of who I was even growing up. I was actually kind of an extroverted kid. Like I got my, my energy stores were refilled by being around people. I always wanted to be around friends, always wanted to hang out with people. But I also, I moved around a lot. So each time that I moved, it would take me a while to build a rapport with new friends, new people, and then we'd move again. And I'd have to start it over again. And so it just felt like each time where I was kind of settling down and settling into a space, it got interrupted. And so then I turned into this very like, well, I must be introverted because I don't really know how to, you know, build, you know, many, many friendships quickly. So I must need just more time alone and need to be kind of a hermit or, you know, um, I, I don't like my feelings. I've got to sort of suppress them and stay more logical and as I'm as I'm finding out, you know, much older, I'm like, no, I actually wasn't even that way then. And sort of suppressing, like I learned to suppress those things. And that sort of dri- drove me deeper into this hole of, oh yeah, then then I must must need to become a woman because that seems to be the only way I can get out of this hole. Did that also have to do with uh male and female socialization patterns in terms of like so for boys i think it gets it gets more intense as we get older mm-hmm. like if you compare men and women in midlife for example loneliness is a huge issue for men in midlife and it's one of the reasons that men have shorter lifespans is because they're more isolated mm-hmm. and we also know that being married is a protective factor for men's health but it's not for women's And that's partly because women just have an easier time making friends. I think that's partly because of our temperament and our socialization, but also because of how people react to someone being open-hearted and interested in them. And I think that um, when females are friendly and open and sociable, uh, nobody bats an eye. That's sort of what is expected. But when males are interested in people, um, it can be off-putting. Some people are like, what? What's wrong with you? Yeah. You creepy? Or, or you know, if you're a guy to other guys, it's like what homo? Yep. Or with girls, they think so. Do you think, given that you started off as this very open-hearted, extroverted little boy that just wanted to make friends and learn about people, and every time you got uprooted and and placed in a new environment, it sort of wore down, wore you down. Maybe you had some experiences that made you feel like, oh, people don't like it when I come up to them and try to become friends. Yeah, I think I'm processing through a lot of that right now and trying to make sense of it. I mean, these are sort of recent observations, but I think that makes sense. Um, Because yeah, I, I, I had an easy time. Like I can remember early on had an easy time making friends and having lots of friends and having a lot, you know, being able to talk to a lot of people. And that's one of the things I've had people tell me that, you know, I, I've, I have, I've been very blessed and gifted with friendships. I mean, I have some deep friendships still going back to college and um, even maintained friendships with people from childhood through these moves through the years. I mean, most of my friendships from childhood at least lasted two or three moves. So I'd make a friend, I'd That's move impressive. two or three times and I'd still be friends with them. I'd always... Uh, like we moved from Ohio to North Carolina when I was 16 and that was the big move. 
every summer I'd go back and hang out with those kids. I mean, all the way, all the way until I graduated, I think college, it might've been right after graduating college was one of the last times I hung out with some of my, you know, friends from that I moved away from when I was 16. Um, and even, even today, yeah, I, I've, I've noticed, you know, my mom even pointed something out to me the other day. She's like, you, you realize that you, like you going out and snapping, you know, shooting photography out in the city and walking around and having these deep, meaningful conversations with random people on the street. You realize most people don't do that. Right. <laughs> like, uh, I guess, I don't know. Um, but I love doing that sort of thing. I love, you know, I love my time alone with my headphones on and just being creative. But I, every time I go out and shoot photography, there's at least one interaction that was just like, this was, this was special. This was com- connecting with another human being on a human level that I think I, I definitely would have missed at some point in like the last 10 years because I wasn't doing this. Uh, but it's, it's made me feel alive. I'm chuckling because I'm I'm thinking about my friend Corey Drayton. I don't know if you saw that interview, but he uh, he's a cancer survivor and a fascinating person. And he's here in Portland, and we've become friends since since we recorded our episode. And I remember I went out for dinner with Corey once, and we were walking around town, and it was dusk. And he carries his photography stuff wherever he goes, <laughs> so he has this huge, super fancy, probably like five thousand dollar camera strapped across his body as we're walking around this neighborhood and it's dusk and this guy pops out of his own front door to say to Corey, Hey man, is that a bloody blah? Like some <laughs> camera title, yeah. like, like total like photography nerd stuff. And Corey was like, Oh yes. in his charming British accent that I can't emulate. <laughs> and, and he starts chatting photography gear. And my first instincts is like, is that guy trying to steal your stuff? <laughs> you know, I'm like, but Corey's just so so confident in himself. And you just kind of reminded me of that and how how lovely it is really to have an interest that brings people together. And all the more so as a man in a world where we're told that men can't be friendly. If they do, it's creepy. If they're not, it's toxic masculinity. And I feel like we need those interactions. It reminds me of how with my interest in gardening, I've gone through phases where I meet up with other plant nerds to swap house mm-hmm. plants or garden plants. And no matter where, you know, you could come from such different walks of life, but you can immediately have that language in common to geek out mm-hmm. on your subject of shared interest. I think we need those sorts of interactions yeah. to create the fabric of society. So it's like, on the one hand, I'm so happy for you that you have that. And on the other hand, it's it's so sad that you receive these messages throughout your life that because you were, because of your aesthetic sensibilities that you you had to try to become a woman. Yeah. 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 And that's, uh, those are the things that it's like, I lost the most. I lost the most from, you know, 10 years ago when I uh, got fired from my missionary job um, until most recently. I mean, I've, it's actually been hard to go out and shoot photography again because it hurts. Cause I go out and I'm, I'm seeing interesting things, talking to interesting people. And there's, there's a grief and a loss of, I lost this for 10 years, 10 years. I didn't do any of this stuff. And I've been in, I live in Philadelphia. I love it. Eventually I'm probably sooner than later, probably going to leave, but there's this sense of, you know, Philadelphia is a, such a beautiful city. There's so much to see here. Um, 
the architecture is a, is is amazing. If you actually look sort of one step below the surface, the architecture is amazing. It's gorgeous. A lot of great people. And now I've lived here for seven years and the last two months are like the first time I'm actually doing this. Um, and so what I'm realizing, I even, I think I tweeted this out the other day. I said something like, what I'm realizing now is that um, it's it's hard and it's painful to be myself. And I think I'm realizing that that's kind of true for everyone. It's not it's not necessarily anything special. It's unique to each of us. But like we live in a world that it is hard and it is painful to be ourselves. And the world tells us that ourselves is ourselves aren't enough. And so somehow I got it in my head that I needed to be, I needed to be something else. I had to be something that I was not in order to be myself. And if I was that thing, which was a trans woman, um, then it would be easier to be myself. Then it wouldn't hurt to be myself. And I, and what I was finding out was, no, that's not true. It's actually making it harder to be myself and it's not easier. And I'm just going to have to keep taking hormones or go do surgeries that I'm not comfortable with in order to be myself. And this isn't, this isn't working. So there has to be some sort of other answer. And the answer was, that's such a, yeah, the answer was right in front of me. It was just live my life the way I wanted to live it. The direct route. Yeah. It's such a, it's such a valuable, excuse me, valuable insight into the human condition that you just named. And I, I wish that same insight for so many people who are lost in their identity crisis right now. Yes. It's hard to be yourself. It's hard to be human. There are things that are inherent in the human nature and the laws of nature and life on earth that are inherently difficult. And to be yourself in the face of all of that, I mean, what does it even mean? You 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 have to search. You have to find yourself. You have to um, – there, it, there's so much that goes into becoming who you are. And it's sad to me that um, people who are lost in gender ideology – think that they're unique in this because yeah. it's prolonging their suffering, yeah. right? It's it's this delusion. It, it's really based in misinformation and it's and it's immature and self-centered to think that you with your unique gender struggle have this unique experience that so-called cis people don't have, which is that it's hard to be yourself. It's like, no, welcome to life on earth. The challenge is to, I mean, on on the one hand, it's to not be, not waste all your time navel gazing, but instead to take an interest in the world around you. And I'm so glad you have photography because it gets you out of your head to pay attention to your environment, to see beauty, to look for beauty, to look for the angle and the lighting. It's so good for you. But at the same time as it's not healthy to be too introspective and and to ruminate on yourself it's also necessary to find the right way for you to look within and find your character and find what makes you truly unique and this idea that your gender identity is what makes you unique is such a weak cop out of this human challenge that is ultimately before all of us not just those who struggle with their so-called gender identity 
so I, I love that you just had this kind of awakening moment around like, yeah, being a person is hard. Developing a sense of character and finding the, the seeds of potential within you and actually nurturing them to manifest them, to express the unique divinity that has taken form in this human body, like that is the name of the game. And it is, it is the challenge put before every single one of us. Yeah. And I, and it's such a, I, I loved your point. Um, just the sadness. Um, and I've, I've experienced the sadness pretty profoundly of just realizing that so many other people, um, I think they, I, I think most people do sense that it is just hard to be themselves. Um, but again, we're, we're taught in this society and it's not a unique thing to people struggling with gender. It's, it's, everyone is taught that, oh, it's not supposed to be hard. Every advertisement we watch is geared towards, oh, life is supposed to be easy. Being you is supposed to be easy. Love yourself. Love, love yourself in the sense of you feel good about yourself. Um, forgetting that love is a verb. It's, it's something that you do. Um, you have to do the acts of loving yourself. And so this, it's almost like this thing gets, it, it, the, the human condition gets misdiagnosed and particularly how it comes up with the, the, the trans issue is that basically the, the pain of a broken limb is getting diagnosed as the broken limb itself. You know, gender dysphoria, the gender incongruence, the struggle wanting to be the opposite sex, it isn't, it isn't what's actually, it's not the root cause. The root cause is just the humanity, the pain, the struggle, having to learn how to grieve properly, uh, having to learn how to have joy properly because joy is hard as well. Like all of these things are hard. And so it manifests itself in this symptom of pain. Um, and for me, it, it like, as soon as I got home from, you know, my time as a missionary, I was bombarded with all these mes messages of, oh, well, you're in pain and it has some sort of, um, has something to do with gender. Well, you must be trans. And then you go and you start diving into, you know, the subreddits and, uh, photos on Instagram and everything. And you see these people just projecting a, a wonderful, happy life with nothing wrong. And you're like, oh, that, that must be the answer. When really, I mean, all they're selling is they're, they're selling a morphine to fix, you know, to fix the pain of a broken bone, yet they're letting the bones stay separated to rot. Um, and, and it's a symbolism of, of dramatic transformation. Yeah. It's, we crave that, yeah. right? I talked about this with Simon Esler, um, and, and there's a clip that he made that he shared on Instagram. I, I'm so glad that he highlighted that moment of the conversation because we talked about the need for rites of passage and how we crave something to symbolize going through a transformation, to make it more real and have it be acknowledged by the people around us. And I think this idea of transing seems to promise to fill that void. Um, and I think that's why so many highly sensitive high IQ, just interesting people, the sorts of people who are fascinated by transformation in general end up getting drawn into this stuff because it's it's it marks this radical transformation. It gives you this concrete path where you're like, oh, I could do this to my body and everything would transform when really what you're looking for is an inner transformation that is harder to define, but it is about coming into a greater sense of wholeness. In this case, 
potentially we could frame that wholeness as a wholeness of the masculine and feminine Mm -hmm. parts of yourself. How are you sleeping? Sleep is a foundation of mental and physical health, equally important to nutrition and exercise, yet it's often the first thing to go during times of stress. Good sleep can help alleviate depression and anxiety symptoms, maintain a healthy weight and metabolism, protect your heart, and even reduce the risk of Alzheimer's. Yet still, a third of Americans struggle with sleep, and temperature is one of the main reasons. Before I got an eight sleep, I was already an expert in sleep hygiene and practiced what I preached to my clients. But I would still wake up overheated in the middle of the night and unable to fall back asleep for one or two hours. Adjusting the air temperature and blankets was not enough. The mattress itself was keeping me hot. But now, I'm sleeping soundly through the night and waking up refreshed thanks to my 8Sleep Pod Pro cover. The Pod Pro cover by 8Sleep is the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. It pairs dynamic cooling and heating with biometric tracking. The cover can adjust the temperature on each side of the bed individually for you and your partner based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature, reacting intelligently to create the optimal sleeping environment. If you'd like to be more patient with your children, more emotionally stable with your partner, a fitter athlete, or more efficient at work, take it from me, a mental health professional. Improving your sleep is one of the best investments you can possibly make in your overall well-being and the lives of everyone you touch. Go to 8sleep.com to check out the pod and use the code SOMETHERAPIST at checkout to start sleeping cool this summer with up to $200 off your purchase. Even if they're already running another sale, this code will get you an additional $50 off. And yes, to my listeners around the world, 8sleep currently ships not only within the USA, but also to Canada, the UK, select countries in the EU, and Australia. All right, now back to the show. Okay, so faith has also played an important role in your journey. You said that when you were very young, your parents became Christians, and they introduced you to a certain way of relating to the Christian faith. At one point, it was important enough to you to become a missionary. And it sounds like that was both kind of the best and the worst time in your life. So uh, walk us through your spiritual story arc. Yeah. So my parents, uh, I watched my parents become Christians when I was like five or six years old. Um, I mean, some of my earliest memories were actually of my parents kind of fighting over things because my mom had become a Christian before my dad did. And, um, I remember seeing a profound change in my parents and particularly when my dad accepted faith and uh, decided to walk in faith, there's, there's a profound change. Um, and so from an early age, I kind of accepted this as, well, they're saying this change happened because of this thing called God and it must be real. And I think it's just something I accepted from a young age and was just as a naturally curious person kept kind of diving into as I got older. Eventually in college, I felt was like when my faith kind of became my own, got involved in the college ministry, was working with students, doing a lot of things, ended up going overseas one summer on what they call the cross-cultural project, and then got invited to go back to that same city once I graduated. And I had honestly, I'd fall in love with the city, the culture, the cross-cultural experience. Um, 
it was like my first time eating Asian food and I fell in love with it and <laughs> couldn't get enough of it. And it wasn't as good here in the States. Uh, and there was something I think about it, as I had mentioned earlier, about feeling like more secure when I'm away from home. There was something about going overseas and being in this setting that was uncomfortable and unknown that I felt just incredibly secure in um, because it felt like I'm as far away from home as I can possibly be. I'm as uncomfortable as I could possibly be. Therefore, I'm as comfortable as I could be Um, because I didn't feel any pressure to be anything but myself. And so during this time, it was really interesting. We were a team of eight recent grads that got sent over by our church in and our ministry in combination with a missions organization. So it was kind of a three-headed leadership monster uh, where nobody uh, nobody was really in leadership. In fact, our boss, our on-the-field boss, as, as he would be known as, was on furlough for the first six months that we were overseas. So we didn't even have a boss with us our first six months. So I was kind of just thrown in and uh, thrown in the deep end to just see if I could sink or swim. And for the first time in my life, I kind of had to feed myself both as a human, as a spiritual um, individual. Like I had to feed myself my own um, spiritual nourishment. And as I was doing that, I was just learning learning and unlearning a lot of things about Christianity. I was just diving into scripture, um, diving into Jesus's words, Paul's words about Jesus. And somehow that like opened up that sort of door that I was, I was trying to go through where I was trying to connect with other people, trying to connect with the artistic, um, the more aesthetic side of life. And it just prompted me to just kind of go out and through photography, through music, try to just capture the world around me. I just wanted to, you know, metaphorically paint a picture of the world that somehow the world is different than what I grew up thinking it was as a sort of a conservative fundamentalist Christian. It's not that many of the values that I learned growing up were wrong. I mean, some of them were very good, but the world just operated differently than sort of the, you know, right-wing conservative Christian mindset in the U.S. And so during this time, you know, I was supposed to be out, you know, sharing the gospel and giving Bibles away and keeping track of how many people were coming to Bible study And while I did some of that, uh, really what I did was I went and did my creative stuff. I did my artwork. I, um, you know, shot a lot of photography, played a lot of music. I was myself in that I went and I built a couple of small, but very deep friendships with people. Um, I wasn't this person that was going to go out and preach some sort of gospel, on the sidewalk. One, because I was in a place where I would have gotten arrested for doing that. And two, it wouldn't have helped. And so I was starting to learn that this model of Christianity that I had modeled before me in college, which was just like, okay, share the gospel, share with people your faith nonstop with everyone as much as you can. You know, it's all a numbers game. I found that really challenged that actually when I read the gospels, when I read Paul's writing, 
even when I re- read the Old Testament, it's more about the person. It's more about the person and the and the interpersonal connection. Um, it's about yes, our relationship with God, but also our relationship with our fellow man, and how do we build this? And our our organization just didn't really operate like that. It was very much like this is strategy. We're going to save the most souls by being in this particular uh, location by you know using these particular tools and and strategies and you know we want to go after the influencers because if you know if we win an influencer for Jesus then they're going to be able to influence everyone else and something didn't sit right with me because of that because again I I struggled with my own masculinity I didn't fit their mold with a lot of things I wasn't an influencer and yet if you if they had just been going after the influencers then they would have missed me altogether in terms of kind of bringing me along, um, giving me some tools in my faith and whatnot. Like I was the kind of person that would have been ignored by this ministry. And when you start reading the scriptures and you start reading how Jesus interacted with people, he interacted with everyone. He didn't just interact with the lowly. He interacted with the high as well. He interacted with everyone and he treated them with the same basic love, dignity, and respect. He dined with the sinners. He dined with the uh, the spiritual authorities of his day who weren't considered sinners. He dined with everyone. Um, and so those were the sorts of things that I was starting to realize. But I, and at the time, I was kind of breaking out of this mold, realizing how sort of introspective and self-critical and perfectionist I was. And I'm like, this isn't working because – Here I am expected to put how many times I've shared the gospel this week, and I haven't done it once because I just, it hasn't arisen. I've been having good conversations with kids. I've got, I'm having, you know, this, this 18 year old kid from the Middle East talking to me about his fears, his hopes and dreams, wanting to go to the U S how he would, how he would feel. Would he be discriminated against? Like there was just no, there was nowhere that I could lovingly quote unquote, share the gospel with him. In that situation, the loving thing to do was just to hear him out. And yet I was expected to do something different. And I was really critical of myself because I was like, well, yes, I did this. I was, you know, loving to this kid and helping him out, but I didn't share the gospel. And it was always those sorts of things that got latched onto. It was the, but I didn't do this, but I didn't do that. So here I am on one sense, you know, kind of fully becoming myself for the first time in my life and living that out. And it it was it was wonderful. I mean, I loved what I was doing over there in terms of of terms of um creating photography, just getting to know people, just trying to be kind and love people. And you know, I feel like the key, like the, the main thing that Jesus says, you know, the, the greatest commandments, he said, love the Lord your God with all your whole your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, you can't, you can't love your neighbor as yourself if you hate yourself, because to love your neighbor as yourself when you hate yourself is to hate your neighbor as well. <laughs> it's, it's like, you just can't do it. Um, and so I was in this place where I was starting to to love myself, love my neighbor. Um, I was actually 
because I was becoming fully myself, I wasn't struggling with gender. I was confident in who I was. Um, started falling in love with one of my teammates, um, and she was very attracted to this Torin. And it it just all was great. It was all amazing. It felt great. Um, but then my boss came back from <laughs> his furlough, and. I think something had happened and I had said, I'll spare you all the gory details, but something had happened and I, I said, I'm sorry, I, I disagree with your take on the situation with this, this woman that I'm falling in love with. Um, I'm going to pursue her. And apparently he got like so mad at me that he wouldn't talk to me for a month um, at that point because I didn't take his advice. And that should have been a red flag, but I kind of kept pushing because there was still this part of me that wanted to be the perfectionist, wanted everybody to like me, wanted to live up to my boss's standards. And so I kept trying to live and be myself while also kind of living with these old standards and some of these old rules and things that I wasn't even clear on. And eventually it just, it, it, it got to a point you, you get, Anyone who's a missionary or an expat for a while might tell you this, um, that like six to nine months overseas, you kind of start going through a second wave of culture shock because it's not that initial like, oh my gosh, this is different. It's the second wave of, oh my gosh, this is my life now (laughs) and I'm here and I'm here and it's not changing anytime soon. So I was kind of going through that. And while, you know, trying to deal with this relationship that, you know, given my background earlier that I explained earlier, I didn't know how to navigate. Um, I was falling in love with this girl, knew I wanted to marry her. I hadn't had physical contact with her at all. Um, there are many times I can look back where I'm thinking, gosh, that moment, I wish I would have just grabbed her hand, but I was too scared to do it. Um, fear of punishment, fear of reprisal, fear of her hating that I did it. Come to find out, she was mad at me for not doing it. <laughs> um, uh, but I was, I was really struggling with that. And then at one point, it became clear we were never going to get my boss's blessing on things. And so that uh, my future soon-to-be wife um, said, well, we have to break it off for now. And that was hellish for me. So now here I am like, okay, I want to be myself. I want to pursue this girl, but I want to um, I want to live up to this guy's standards and have him approve of my relationship. I don't know how to do that. I felt like I was kind of being split in two. Here I was pursuing this new me that's kind of adventurous out there, um, feeling whole, but then I'm falling back into these old ways of I need to have some sort of formula or I need to have some sort of way to live my life for it to be good. I was splitting in two, and then one night all of a sudden I had a dream, and in that dream I had transitioned. Um, and I woke up just freaked out, and this is in the middle of October of like 2012, and I can't tell my boss this um, because he was mad at me and yelling at me about having uh, late night conversations with (laughs) just late night conversations, nothing else, just conversations. I can't tell him about gender and all of this stuff that I'm dealing with and freaked out about why haven't I dealt with this for a year and now all of a sudden I do. Um, Instead, he kind of twisted it and put it all back on my relationship. I like two days later, 
I'm talking with him and he said, you know, I, I couldn't talk to you for a month after I came back. And he, and he said, I, you know, people give me, people give me, people tell me that I give good advice. They tell me that I give great advice. And you know what? I, I think they're right. Cause, cause each time somebody chooses not to take my advice, they see my life spin out. It's their lives spin out of control. I'm like what? <laughs> what is like, what is this? And I, I, kind of, again, that, that new me of not, of just wanting to kind of sort of push back, be myself, not just go along with the flow. I I started pushing back on him and things just kept getting worse. It, It became this, you know, you are the only one prolonging this conflict. This conflict's making me be a bad father and husband. You aren't fit to be a missionary. Um, you know, just all this stuff. And then eventually you know, my, the, the, uh, the two others and the, the uh, three-headed monster came over to visit and they just kind of gave the standard reformed Christian response of, well, you know, you're supposed to submit to your leaders, right? And wouldn't even dive in to what was going on. They just took my boss aside and said, this is what's happening. And Torin, you need to learn how to submit. Um, and eventually I got fired because despite even trying to submit, I mean, I offered to try to get like mediation and counseling. I mean, I was the one that was constantly reaching out, trying to mend the relationship. And, you know, this guy would take every one of those, you know, olive branches, grab it, and then hit me back across the face with it. And eventually I got fired. And so what I like to tell people is it, is it felt like I died that day I got fired, but it was more like I got poisoned. Um, I came home, I actually flew home on Christmas Eve, um, 2012. And it was devastating because I had gotten to a point where I'm like, I I don't care about what this guy says about me. I don't care about what he says about my relationship. I know who I am. I know, um, I know what's what's been good and bad about this whole thing. And this guy isn't isn't right. So I had tried to um I, I had I tried to sort of express that to, you know, my my future wife. And we were gonna do some things at Christmas and on we were gonna do some things together on Christmas Day that year. And but it just got so bad that I flew home the day before. I said, I can't do it anymore. Um so I flew home and it eventually, you know, my, that woman and I got married, um, about a year and a half later in in 2014, but I like slowly was just becoming less and less of myself, just replaying the conversations that I had and with my boss in my head. I mean, there were late nights up at 3am in the shower, talking to myself, like replaying these conversations, trying to figure out what went wrong. Um, and even part of that was my my future wife had had stayed overseas too. She didn't come home when I did. She didn't get fired. She wasn't considered to have done anything wrong. It was all me. Um, and so I had you know this this sort of six months of just replaying these conversations over and over and over again, having flashbacks. I'd go to church and I'd have you know a certain song would come on, and I'd have a flashback to my boss saying, "Oh, that's my favorite song." and have to walk out of church. Uh, years later, I mean, after my wife and I had gotten married, we'd, we'd sit down in a church and I'd hear a particular verse or something and have a panic attack. Um, and just eventually, 
I just quit altogether. I didn't give up and say, well, I don't believe in God anymore. But I said, I can't be around this. Um, and so what kind of happened, and this, and this is eventually is what led me to transitioning, is, is I just made a series of choices that were just all trying to run away from that experience. Uh, there were, looking back, there were many people, many spiritual leaders, pastors, people that I didn't recognize were safe. That looking back, these were safe people that I could have talked to and talked to them about my struggles in, in Southeast Asia, talked to them about my struggles with gender, and been easily kind of, well, not easily, but gone on like a path of healing. And instead, I just kept running. So I, you know, I moved, I changed jobs, I've moved up to Philadelphia. And eventually, you know, nothing was healing that wound. And then suddenly in 2017, my wife leaves um, because I'm struggling with all of this stuff. And I spend three years trying to fight to get her back. She doesn't come back. We get divorced. And then I decide, okay, well, nothing else has worked, so I might as well transition. Um, so that's kind of the story of what happened. Um, what happened in 2012 in Southeast Asia and sort of led uh, just this, this downward spiral, like I said, sort of a poison and just a slow breaking until I thought I had nothing left to do besides um, socially and medically transition. Wow, thank you for sharing that story. When you describe your experience in Southeast Asia and there, there, there's this profound disconnect between how you are fundamentally orienting toward the experience of being a missionary and how the people organizing it, and in particular this one boss, conceptualized of what your role should be. It seems like they wanted you to behave according to a script mm -hmm. as this like brand ambassador for Jesus TM, like their trademarked <laughs> version of Jesus. And, and I think there's a reason that groups like this recruit young people in their early 20s, for example, because your identity formation is still in such a early state that you can be recruited for an army. You're, you're looking for some sense of meaning and purpose. You're looking for yourself. You want to know that your life has value. And they can swoop in and say, we'll take all that youthful vitality and motivation that you have, and we'll tell you how to direct it. Here's how you can make your life meaningful. Just follow this script be an ambassador for our mission. And you were on a completely different wavelength as an individual. You were actually making the scripture your own. You were developing a, a more mature relationship with spirituality. Again, I see you as precocious, mm -hmm. right? Like you were doing it the way someone in their 30s or 40s might do it, not the way a 22 or however old you were, like a 22-year-old recruit was supposed to behave in this position, <laughs> which is following the script and the recipe. And it's ironic because, well, for many reasons, but for one being, I think your approach would be much more effective. You were actually thinking about how do I become more like Jesus and reflecting on the scripture in that personal way. And from my perspective, 
um, as somebody who doesn't, you know, I, I am a very spiritual person, but I don't um, label myself as ascribing to any particular faith. And I will say in my interactions with Christians or with people of any faith that nobody who's ever approached me with a missionary spirit has done a look of good towards changing my mind yep. about anything. The people who have had the most profound impact on changing my perception of what is a Christian and how appealing is Christianity have been the people who I didn't even know they were Christian until much later, but I was drawn to the example that they set, right? Those are the people I learned the most from where I was like, oh, I have this story in my head about what a Christian is. And it was that kind of missionary, that kind of person who's not operating from a place of genuineness or humility, but who thinks they have all the answers and their only interest in me as a person is in how to convert me to thinking the way they think so that they can feel shored up in their beliefs. That's not appealing to me at all as an individual who thinks for myself and who has a strong independent streak, right? But it's I remember being put to shame once by a coworker who was a very lovely person, generous and kind and considerate and tried to bring people together. And um, and I remember saying something callous about Christians once, not realizing that she was one um, because I was operating from what it had meant to me to be Christian based on the exposure and life experiences that I had had. And she really, really gently, without shaming me, took the next opportunity to enlighten me as to the fact that she was a person of faith. And I was like, that was such a learning moment for me, right? And it's been experiences like that that have helped me see um, how, how attractive Christians can be in their making their faith their own in a deeply personal way, in the way that you do. That's the type of Christianity that's most appealing to me. You know, I'm sitting here having an honest, genuine conversation with a wholehearted person who takes time to meditate on scriptures and think about how could I follow Jesus' teachings to become a better person? That's what's most appealing to me. So it's just so ironic <laughs> as someone who's culturally very different from the culture that you were in at the time to see that they had this like corporate mission <laughs> to convert people and be strategic about it. And here you were coming from this heart-centered place, <laughs> so innocent, <laughs> and they tried to stamp that out of you. Um, and then your whole story from there, I mean, I know there's a lot that you shared past that point, but it's interesting that like you finally had, um, you finally had a woman you loved in your life. And it was when, it was when you finally gave up on getting her back that it seemed like you kind of reverted to that idea that you could fill the void in your life, this, and that you could find the femininity that you were looking for through becoming it physically yourself rather than through relationship. Um, but I want to, I want to go back to that point in 2017. You said that your wife left you because you were struggling with this gender stuff. So during the time that you were married, I mean, on the one hand, it's like you finally had that love. You finally had that woman that you had fallen for. So to what extent when you were married, was there a honeymoon phase where the gender dysphoria fell away again? Were you struggling with it the whole time? And what was the relationship between you having a relationship with an actual woman and mm -hmm. your, your love life and your 
feeling that you somehow needed to become a woman? Um, I think there, I don't, I don't want to say it was necessarily that there was no relationship between the two. Uh, let me see if I can phrase this right. Um, there, I'll follow your question more closely. Yes, there was a honeymoon period. Um, there, there was definitely a time where it was wonderful. It was about six months. Um, that was just great. Uh, we both, she had just gotten back from overseas cause she'd stayed a year longer than I had. I mean, things just wor- worked out brilliantly, like better than they could have in my wildest dreams. We were both unemployed. Uh, we went through with the wedding. We got married, came back from our honeymoon with no jobs. And within like three weeks, we both had jobs, had an apartment where both started successful careers. Um, it was probably about six months into it when I was still, I was still trying to engage with my faith at the time. And I realized I, I couldn't, it was just too painful. We had started going to some churches and again, I think these probably could have been safe places to deal with all this, but the pain was too fresh. It was still too closely connected to some of the stuff, you know, we had been involved with and it was, it was just triggering. Um, I don't, I don't like using that word, but I, it, it's probably the best, best that I can use to describe it. Like going back to church and dealing with some of this stuff was, was just triggering. It triggered all of the, all of the days of, you know, getting yelled at, um, by my boss or having, you know, my boss's boss, you know, screaming at me in a Starbucks Torin, where is your sin? Um, all of this stuff was flooding back. And at the time I had a, I had a childhood friend pass away. I had, um, one of my best friends from college came to me and was like, I don't, Doran, I don't know if I have faith anymore. Um, all of these things were kind of happening and I just felt my identity, you know, that identity that sort of had kept holding on, uh, after the abuse, it was like the poison took hold gradually. And then suddenly it like fell off a cliff at one point, like my entire, just who I was collapsed. Um, and so when my identity and my foundation kind of collapsed, it, it didn't matter that I had what I wanted, what I desired in terms of a wife and wanting a family and these sorts of things. It didn't matter that I had that. Uh, I didn't know who I was anymore. So how could I relate to her? How could I love her? Well, um, how could I feel loved by her if my entire identity is collapsed? And so I went through this, you know, probably I, we got married in March of 2014 and it was probably October, uh, maybe November of 2014 when things started really going downhill where I just suddenly went in, into this constant for three years, violent back and forth of, oh, wait, I think I know who I am. I love my wife. I love being torn. I, excited about our future, excited about all this stuff versus I don't think I can be me. I feel like I'm drowning. I'm burnt out, uh, just never finding any answers. And so I think, yeah, it just, to answer your original question, it, it just having, having the wife at that point, having that relationship, um, 
I guess, I guess since I, the, my identity had kind of already collapsed, it just, it didn't help. Um, and in some ways, I mean, I think, you know, whether we're looking at it from a Christian perspective, or I think we could probably say the same thing from just about any perspective. I mean, if a relationship isn't going to save you, um, if my identity is collapsing, my, my wife, you know, couldn't have been expected to pick up the pieces. Um, are there ways that I could have loved her better and she could have loved me better and maybe we had gotten through it a little bit better? Yeah, probably. Um, but instead of, instead of dealing with, instead of me dealing with the parts of me that were falling apart, I just kept running away, um, and kind of dragging, uh, dragging my wife along with me until she decided she just didn't want to be dragged along anymore. As a therapist, I've gotten an up close and personal view at what people tend to struggle with day in and day out. Turns out it's almost universal that we know we should be taking better care of ourselves in terms of the basic building blocks of well-being like diet and exercise. But as valuable as it is for our mental and physical health to change our lifestyle habits, it's also much easier said than done. People often set goals that are too lofty, only to feel even worse about themselves when their aspirations inevitably fail. That's why I recommend starting with positive changes that are as simple as possible. Enter my new favorite beverage line. Organifi makes it so easy to improve your nutrition and start feeling better right now with refreshing plant-based blends of superfoods and adaptogens that you can just mix with water. My personal favorite is their green juice. It contains moringa, ashwagandha, chlorella, spirulina, wheatgrass, beets, turmeric, mint, lemon, and coconut water. 100% organic with no added sugar. And it tastes great. My family loves Organifi Gold, which promotes relaxation and restful sleep, served mixed with warm almond milk before bed. Organifi also makes several other powerful blends, all organic and loaded with vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, phytonutrients, anti-inflammatory herbs, and adaptogens. For less than $3 and 3 grams of sugar per serving, you can start giving your cells the support they need to manage stress and feel good. Check out their product line at Organifi.com. That's spelled O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com. And use promo code SOMETHERAPIST to get 20% off your entire order. Your whole body will thank you. sounds like you were still young and didn't know how to find your stability and the process of finding stability has had to take the time that it's had to take unfortunately and there's there's been some casualties yeah yeah and it's it's tough and it's um i tell people my my biggest regrets um transitioning isn't my biggest regret um yeah i wish i'd never had gone down that path but I wish I would have had some of the wisdom and foresight to stick it out with a few relationships much earlier on. Uh, certain like relationships with friends, with pastors, um, with people that looking back, and I keep saying this, would have been safe to talk to. Um, and I think if I had just done that and allowed myself to lean on stability that was there in my life, but I didn't recognize it, then I may not have gone down those paths. Um, but 
then again, I, <laughs> I really know what you're talking about. I, I can relate because I can think back to times in my life that I've been traumatized by some circumstance or another. And, and that I, I've also looked back and recognized all the people that I could have turned to. But I think there's something about when you go through a traumatic event that affects your basic sense of whether you are a good person, it really distorts your self-perception. So for me, that's one of my core fears. Um, I'm like an Enneagram type one for anybody who's into that. <laughs> you know, my core, my core fear is that I am fundamentally morally corrupt. And if you if you listen to what Enneagram experts like like Chris Hewitt, he's one of my favorites, has to say about this, it's like there's there's a great deal of compassion for people like me because it's like our our fear of being morally corrupt causes us to overcompensate so much that like we're actually some of like the most upstanding citizens, but but we're still tormented by that fear. And the the experiences that I've had that have been the most hurtful to me made me feel like there was some deep, dark sin or stain upon my soul that everyone could see in me but me that I could not fundamentally change about myself that was irredeemable. You know, And when you go through an experience like that, which emotional abuse will do to you, especially if it's coming from a spiritual leader, when you've just traveled literally to the other side of the planet to devote your life to your spirituality, and then the person who's in charge, who's this authority figure, is telling you you're corrupt and yelling at you, where is your sin? That kind of experience, I, I can relate to the type of wound that that creates. Um, for me, it dates back to experiences of frankly, persecution dating back a long time. Those types of experiences can so fundamentally alter your sense of self that you walk around the world with this distorted view where even people who have said the most kind and loving things to you or who have been nothing but innocuous toward you, to, to put it more neutrally, those people, your your image of them changes too because there's the sense, well, if I have this huge stain upon my soul that's this glaringly obvious, irredeemable flaw to everyone but me and I've been rejected, when, when I put my whole heart on the line and try to devote myself to a noble cause, I was told I wasn't good enough, then all of these people must be able to see it too. And, and you don't see the grace that's available for you, which is like, ironic because as a person of faith, grace is one of the most beautiful things that faith has to offer. It's it's this idea you don't have to be perfect because your salvation is found in your faith, that you you can be unconditionally loved and accepted through your faith in God. Um, and it's like that could have been there for you all along. And now that you're in a better place with your faith, you realize that there are many people who share your faith, who share your values, and who would who would be more similar to you, the people who examine their hearts to ask themselves, how can I follow Jesus's word? How can I be more like Jesus in my life? Like all of those people were out there for you and you probably could have found that community. And these people probably would have seen you through much more kind and loving eyes. But because you had that experience of being seen through this again, the word that's coming up is like persecutory filter of someone just looking for the evil in you um, mercilessly. Because you had that experience, it kind of, it closes you down to realizing how you would have been seen through the eyes of love. And I, I remember a time that I was in a horribly abusive relationship. And when it finally fell apart, I turned to a friend who 
it quickly became clear to me would have been there for me at any point. Like I could have asked this friend for help at any point and he would have helped me get out. But, but going through emotional, psychological, spiritual abuse, it really prevents you from seeing that. And I think that this is something that a lot of people don't understand and it prevents people from having compassion for like domestic abuse victims. Why didn't she leave? That's a common one. But those of us who've been through it know that feeling. Yeah. And uh, man, uh, like the only reason, I mean, I still, I'd say actually I've kind of of come full circle and um, I'm back sort of having a faith. I'd call myself a Christian. I'd say my faith is probably stronger than it's ever been. Um, and it was because I ran into some people that understood that. I, I found a church here in Philly that I go to, um, and it's actually a really sad. Uh, it's actually a really sad week or two because um, the pastor just resigned um, for his own for his own mental health and loving his family and needing to kind of move on to another season of life. But um, he. He resigned and he walked away and he was one of the first people that showed me what it looked like to suffer well. Um, I went to his church for the first time in August of 2018. It was right after marriage counseling ended and it was clear that the relationship was going nowhere. And I walked into his church and I don't know if it was the end of service, beginning, his wife gets up, the pastor's wife. And in Christian church, the pastor's wife has a certain you know image that comes to mind. Well put together, is very supportive, and um, just always smiling. She gets up there and she's like, I struggle with mental health. There are days where I can't get out of bed and my husband has to feed the kids. And I know that that's not supposed to be what a pastor's wife does. But this is what I struggle with. And just, there's the first time I'd ever heard mental health talked about a church. Um, and over the years, I got to know this guy and he was just always, just always saying, well, I hear you. I believe you. I think you're normal. It was never, hardly ever interjected his opinion. Because um, if he had, I probably would have lost it on him. And I think there was one time he interjected something and I wasn't a fan of it and <laughs> made sure he knew it. Because um, I can be a jerk sometimes too. Um, but you know, one thing he said to me recently is, as I'm kind of processing what to do next in life, he said, don't, don't be afraid to sin. He said, God is not afraid of your sin. And I said, you know what? That sounds like Martin Luther. Well, I said, it sounds like uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer because in Bonhoeffer's cost of discipleship, he, he quotes Luther and Luther says, you're, you're a sinner. So be a sinner and let grace abound even more. Um, and as Bonhoeffer goes on to explain, this isn't like a license of like, this isn't telling a 13 year old, oh, go do whatever the heck you want to do because there's grace. It's telling the mature, you know, the wise old human being, don't be afraid to mess up. Um, yeah, don't go looking to mess up, but, but don't be afraid to make a mistake. And so it was just so beautiful to hear him say that. Um, and then come to find out, I just started reading this book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality by a guy named Peter Scazzaro. And he's just walking through basically the need for Christians to kind of get to know themselves, get to know and understand their feelings, their emotions, to not look at them 
uh, to look at them critically, but not look at them negatively. Like, yes, we should be critiquing our emotions. Why are we feeling the way we're feeling? But we shouldn't jump, uh, jump the gun and say, well, this feeling is wrong. Actually, the feeling itself isn't right or wrong. It's telling us something about ourselves, something about our relationship to the world, something about our relationship to God. Now, what we choose to do with that feeling might be right or wrong, but the actual feeling itself isn't. And so Scazzaro just gets in, starts getting into that and, and talking about grief and loss and kind of what it takes to grow, um, going through what the ancients called the dark night of the soul or what Scazzaro is calling the wall and just, just going through this time of having to learn, um, yeah, learn how to relate to our own pain, our own suffering, our own confusion and learn, I mean, I guess learn empathy, learn how to truly love yourself and therefore truly love God and others. Um, and so it's been beautiful reading this book because I, I come to find out my pastor's basically been preaching <laughs> out of it for like a year. And this guy was with me through the whole thing. He was with me through the divorce. He was with me through my decision to transition. Um, you know, he even had me over his house uh, with his family uh, when I was presenting as a trans woman for Thanksgiving. Um, and when I had these experiences that I decided to detransition, was thinking about re-diving back into my faith. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't dial his number fast enough to say, hey, I had this experience and I want to kind of dive back into my faith. And it was, it was the first person. I, I couldn't think of anybody else. That's so beautiful and inspiring. And we'll be sure to put the link to that book that you recommended in the show notes. I'm curious to check it out now. So this idea, don't be afraid to sin. And I appreciate the uh, caveat you put around it, right? That this isn't like, free license. It's not encouraging people to go and break all the rules and then repent and break them again yeah. and repent. It's not about that, but it's for the person who can, the, the person who is self-reflective, who is seeking godliness in their life, um, that there are some of us who are so hard on ourselves and that the fear of being morally corrupt, like I talked about earlier with that pattern that we, we can call, you know, we can ascribe that to the Enneagram one for me, for example. Um, that it can it can actually get in our way of receiving grace. And I feel like I've witnessed this in my role as a therapist as well when I work with people who are hard on themselves, um, receiving grace from others. You know, that, for example, there are times that people are blessed to have people who love them and who would forgive them and who would step in if they if they needed the support, but they don't lean into that support. And so the whole, the whole, let's say, family system remains kind of emotionally impoverished because they're putting too much pressure on themselves and they're not letting grace in. And it's like, well, rather than beating yourself up for this, you could lead with a thank you for your graciousness and generosity in my life. And I'm, I'm going to lean into that, that and soak it up. And that can bring so much balance and peace into your life. And I also think about some of the some of the best influences that I have gotten from Christian teachings lately are really about that element of grace. And I, I will counter, or excuse me, I'll juxtapose that with 
my experience of like Twitter, for instance, <laughs> which is still, believe it or not, has been a net positive in my life. I've accomplished a lot through Twitter. I've made friends through Twitter. I've had wonderful podcast guests and hosts both ways through Twitter. Um, but it's, of course, not been without its stress. And the, some of the criticism I've received online is, well, most of the criticism I've received online has several traits in common. So people jumping to drastic conclusions about me and my character and intentions based on very limited information. But even um, one example that comes to mind is one of the most nasty reviews of my podcast on Apple Podcasts is also the also one of the most unhinged reviews. It's the longest. And it's really kind of all over the place, uh, telling a story about who Stephanie Wynn is. Um, and I think I have about as much in common with that version of Stephanie Wynn as I do with like the Stephanie Wynn, who's a researcher at UC Davis, the Stephanie Wynn, who's a wedding photographer, um, and the Stephanie Wynn who dated a guy who was on The Bachelor, because there are several Stephanie Wynns <laughs> out there. I know this because of Google alerts. Um, and there's also, uh, likewise, there's a Stephanie Wynn boogeyman that lives in certain people's heads who have decided that they love to hate me. Um, and whereas my value system would compel me to just not follow those people who I don't like. There are certain people who go through this world just like addicted to fear and anger and, and righteous outrage, and they want to fixate on the people they don't like. That's not something I can relate to. I don't want that kind of stress in my life, but there are people who love to hate me. And when I read like this lady's review of my podcast, I presume it was a lady, um, was like, it was like this half true story about my whole life that I she must have pieced together from I I don't even know like she must have had access to old Facebook photos or like groups I was in on Facebook I'm not even active on Facebook anymore but like she strung together a narrative based on like little bits and pieces of da data that was like half true about who I am and where I've been and what like phases of life I've been through and what interests I've had but it put it all in this really negative light that was like fundamentally shaming me for being even a person for being a person who changes her mind about things, which is like the last thing that anyone's going to be able to successfully shame me for, because that's something that I don't know that I would say that I'm proud of, but I certainly love and accept about myself. Like I am somebody who is transformation oriented and driven. I love being there for people when they're going through major transformations. I love talking about transformation on my podcast with people like you who are seekers. And the fact that I've gone through different phases in my own kind of seeking journey is not something that you that anyone's going to have the power to weaponize against me and say is evidence that I'm somehow morally derelict. It's like, if anything, the fact that I've been searching for the truth my whole life is, is something that I quite like about myself. But I say all this because things like that they do give me an adrenaline rush. The criticism I encounter that is full of usually projections and straw manning, it does affect me. But I think that there's times that I, I lean into some sort of, you could say, Christian teachings about grace and forgiveness and the fact that viewed from a certain angle, if you believe in the concept of sin, like we are all, you could say, guilty of it. But the love is so much bigger than that. Right. And if I can have compassion for people who've done horrible things and I'm just an ordinary person who works as a therapist in one of my capacities, um, then like if there is a God, I'm sure God is so God's grace is so much bigger than like my grace as an individual. So I, I find comfort in that. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, there's so much I relate to in that. I think, you know, as I'm, as I'm learning, I think it, I, so I, um, I was involved. We, this is a tangent that we don't probably don't have time for, and we don't have to get into too much, but I was involved in politics and it was, it was almost soul crushing because I found myself in order to score political points. Um, I had to be a jerk. Um, I had to take half truths. I had to twist them. And that's, that was the, that was the perverse incentive. Um, and I know firsthand what that feels like to be done to me as well. Cause even in politics, I had the same thing happen. I, I was speaking out against some of the mandates in Philadelphia and I had a local newspaper write an entire article about this organization I founded and say, we were fat, we were funded by the KKK. Um, it, and like, I'm getting messages like we have the receipts we have your bank accounts we know this is like going we know who you are i'm like uh, i haven't taken money from anyone um other than some just other local people and i, I it, it yeah and all of these issues whether we're talking about trans or politics or anything or especially on twitter there's just everybody's quick quick to speak um the, one of the one of the characteristics the Bible will say about God is he's slow to anger and abounding to steadfast love. I feel like we as humans tend to be the opposite. We're we're very quick to anger. We're quick to speak, and we're quick to put others down. And some of the greatest wisdom and greatest advice I've been given recently, and and this has caused me to kind of go silent. I mean, I used to post almost daily on Twitter, almost daily on Facebook. And now I find myself, you know, maybe once or twice a week starting to type out tweets and then I delete it and don't post anything. And part of it's just because I, I'm realizing that sort of the, the stronger I hold an opinion or the stronger I hold a value the more care that I need to take in expressing it. I mean, mm. I have, I have such strong opinions on, on transitioning and, and things and thing. The more I learn, the more strong they become. And I'm just realizing me voicing them doesn't necessarily help. <laughs> um, and the way I'm going to voice them sometimes, especially given my own experience, I can be triggered pretty easily. The way that I might express them out of that isn't, isn't going to be helpful. So my thought process has kind of become, okay, I've been given a lot of grace. Am I able to extend that grace as well? Um, sometimes I can, sometimes I can't. Uh, and sometimes, you know, some, you know, I've just had, I've had experiences recently that have just been profound where, you know, I've just had people kind of share like, oh, you know, I, I'm going through something, I'm going through X, Y, Z, and I, I can only share it with you because you're willing to be so sort of slow to speak 
or slow um, to have an opinion. And that's not to say that anybody, that, that nobody should. I mean, we're, you know, of course I'm giving some of my opinions here. I mean, I was given a, given a chance to speak on a platform. Um, It was freely given to me. So I said, okay, I'll share you as a, as a therapist, as, as someone who has a platform and is building it, you have a lot of knowledge, a lot of things to share. Like, please share it. Like things like, um, the transatlantic slave trade was ended because someone like William Wilberforce, who was a Christian who had strong opinions, took his political platform and used it for good. But how, how we're right and whether or not we can be right or wrong with grace almost matters more than that we're right or wrong. It makes more, how, how we're right or wrong makes more of a difference than that we are right or wrong. And I just keep repeating that to myself over and over again because I have there's such a temptation every day going through Twitter, seeing all the stuff being said on all sides from the right and the left. It's like I want to insert my opinion and say, hey, I'm right. I've been through this. I know what's needed. And that almost never comes off well. It almost never helps. It almost never meets the person where they are. And... um. Yeah, I guess at that point, all I can do is, you know, in my own faith is just pray and and seek to support and encourage those who do have a good platform in a good space to actually make a difference. I think that's such an important point, and I love the way you articulated it, that the more passionately you feel about something, the more you have a duty to speak very well about it. And... um People are always asking me my advice for parents who are worried about their kids transing. And I struggle because it comes up in almost any, almost any time someone interviews me, they ask me that. And I can't give very much blanket advice because one of the things I do professionally is have long, complicated conversations with people to really understand what's going on in their family, how their relationship with their child is, what's driving it for their child. Um, but I will say that as I've been in my own process of trying to find, okay, what are those universal pieces of wisdom that I can give? I think you touched on it because I do find myself counseling parents not to be impulsive. It is really hard not to be impulsive when you are worried that your child is going to harm themselves. Like that triggers such (laughs) a deep instinct, but I've, I can't tell you how many sessions I've had where a parent comes to me saying, I said something I shouldn't have said, or they're like, Stephanie, you're not going to approve of this. (laughs) And, you know, I have total compassion for what they did and why it's not like I'm here to disapprove and make people feel judged. But when, when they're saying that, what they know is that tactically I wouldn't recommend it, right? You have to be strategic if, if you're trying to win. And if what you're trying to do is rescue your child from a cult and p- prevent them from going down a dangerous path, they're already several steps down. Um, you cannot afford to stick your foot in your mouth. You certainly can't afford to be operating from a place of self-righteousness. Right. And it's hard for parents because they are human. They end up getting into these power struggles. They're mad at their kids. They're mad at their kids for causing so much stress in their family and for and for causing so many sleepless nights and marital tension sometimes 
that sometimes they just want to be right. Sometimes these parents will end up like picking a fight with their kid over the gender issue when their kid was having a good day. And it's like, that's exactly what not to do. So that is some of the advice that I give them. This is a marathon, not a sprint. You need to ground yourself, take care of yourself, be in it for the long haul, think strategically. Do not let your ego get in the way of doing whatever is in the best interest of your child. And there's going to be moments that it's going to require a superhuman grace. And so if you do have faith, now's the time to lean into it because, (laughs) yeah, um, there's so much more I want to talk to you about. I want to talk about your choice to potentially go into the counseling psychology field and blend that with your Christian faith. Um, And also, we didn't even hear what hormones have done to you. (laughs) Um, I don't know if, I don't think that's the most interesting part, but maybe we can just, I don't know, maybe we can follow up at some point in the future. But did you want to at least say, because you did say that you've had some health problems as a result of having taken estrogen? Um, Well, I don't, I don't know if I've had anything specific. I think I've had some deep, mental health struggles that I think are pretty related to low testosterone. Um, Mm. and just dealing with a lot of brain fog, very just lack of energy, lack of motivation, a lot of compulsive eating, um, things that, yeah, I think it's difficult because I don't, um, I actually, I, I don't like, I don't know. I don't, the easy thing I know is to go on my insurer's website and find a doctor. But as someone who has dealt with the medical system in the ways that I have, it's actually really intimidating. And it's yeah. not like as a detransitioner or as someone who did this. I mean, when I told the service that I was going through to get hormones, oh, they're, they were just like, oh, thanks. Well, it was so great to have you. Uh, it was so good to get to know you. And I'm like, you didn't get to know me at all. And you're not even asking why I'm leaving or if I'm stopping or if I need any help. Um, so it just seems like there's a, yeah, there's a lack. Um, there's a lack of so a- you're not receiving medical care. You haven't had right. your testosterone levels checked. Right. When was the last time you saw a doctor? Oh, it's uh, a couple years. <laughs> So since you stopped yeah. taking cross-sex hormones, yep. you have not seen a doctor. Correct. Um, this is so concerning, and I hope that everyone who's made it this far in the conversation, I understand we're almost two hours yeah. in, so thanks for bearing with us if you listen this far. But please, like this should be sending off alarm bells. I mean, Torin has been through relatively less than a lot of other people who detransitioned. Torin has not had surgery and wasn't on hormones for super long, but- Of course, low testosterone and a higher amount of female hormones in your system than your body would produce naturally is going to have an impact, of course, on your mood and energy and all of that kind of stuff. And of course, it makes sense that you're hesitant to seek medical care. I I don't know if I've ever talked to a detransitioner who wasn't hesitant to seek (laughs) medical or mental health care because of what you've been through. Like, I've lost so much trust in the medical system, just observing the gender crisis and its impact on other people. And um, I can hardly imagine what it's like to go through that yourself. But I do think that one of the many things we need to be working on on society, as a society right now, and something that I hope to have opportunities in the near future to work on is helping put some systems in place to find appropriate providers for people like you who are 
in this post-trans haze. And, and there are people who are in much more complicated situations where, you know, let's say women who have been on T for a certain number of years, like they look male, so they have to figure out what to do socially. You're not in that position. You look male, you are male. So that's a little bit more straightforward for you. But there are people in all kinds of unprecedented situations, medically, psychologically, and socially, who are going to need so much help and who have every reason not to trust in medical and mental health providers. This is a real crisis. It puts a lot of people at risk of health problems that could have been prevented or treated, of mental health problems, of suicide, which I know you didn't bring up. And thankfully, it doesn't seem like that's a concern. But I'm just saying that your story is just you know, it's the one cockroach you see on the kitchen floor that tells you that there's a thousand behind the walls. That's what it is. Um, so I really hope you find a good provider. Um, I would, you know, maybe there's even someone listening to this right now. Um, if you're in Philly (laughs) and you're in the medical field or you know anyone who is, and you can recommend a provider for Torin, that would be awesome. I really hope that you get checked out. I hope that there are things that you can do. Have you experimented with any natural techniques for raising your testosterone? Um, I've done some things that have kind of helped off and on. I just haven't been able to find anything that's been like sustainable. And I think I'm just going through kind of a period right now where I'm dealing like a lot of the stuff that we're talking about talking about today, a lot of it's fresh in terms of me getting new understanding of it. So it's wearing me out emotionally, which is wearing me out physically, mm. which is kind of preventing me from doing the things that I wanted would like to do. Like I'd, I'd love to go on more of a, you know, mostly protein, meat-based diet, um, things that I know that have helped my mental health and things in the past. Um, or even, you know, cold showers in the morning, followed by bike rides, followed by weightlifting, things that I love to do um, that I know helps with all this stuff. But yeah, I'm I'm like physically, you know, mentally in a fog, physically drained, and I just don't seem to have anything sticking. So right now I'm I'm basically my my goal for I think this week is to is to muster up the courage to just connect with somebody, mm-hmm. connect with a doctor somewhere to see if this yeah. is this is the sort of the thing that's going on. Because I think I have got, I think I've got a lot of great foundations and I've done a lot of good work and I'm ready to just take the next steps and kind of move forward in life. And I'm, I fear that just the physical, the, the physiological portions of mental health are kind of hanging, holding me back right now. And this is something that a lot of people, even people with really good intentions don't understand that people who've been through transing and detransing are often not well physically as a result and aren't going to have the energy and vitality that you would expect of someone of their age. And yet at the same time, there's so much pressure on those detransitioners who have come out publicly to do all of these speaking engagements and advocacy work. And I I just hope and pray for them that they're not burning out, that they're well taken care of. Um, And it feels like it feels like a sick plot. I mean, there's no way of knowing how deliberate any of this is or who's behind it it's easy to start feeling like a conspiracy theorist but it it doesn't it, on some level it doesn't feel accidental that the people who have every right to be 
the most outraged about what's going on are they don't have the energy to be outraged. You know, the people who have been harmed don't have the energy to advocate for themselves. And that feels on some level, it feels very sinister. So I'm sorry that you're going through that, but I'm I'm glad that we at least had this conversation to remind you that that is a goal of yours. Yeah. And there are groups that are setting up systems like Society for Evidence-Based Gender Medicine, GenSpect has their Beyond Trans program. Do No Harm is a relatively new organization that's doing some really great work. And we we have a lot of work to do as a society to set up the support systems that we need for people like you. And I really hope you find a good, trustworthy provider and that you feel empowered towards your future goals because it seems like you have a lot to offer this world. So I will leave it there. Thank you so much for joining me today, Torin, and sharing your story. I really enjoyed talking with you. Tell us what's next for you and where people can find you. Yeah, thank you so much. It was definitely a pleasure. Um, what's next? Yeah, I'm, I'm in the process of trying to figure that out. I, I might. Uh, I, I was going into politics. I have a career in data analysis. I think I'm going, kind of moving away from all of that, but trying to take it slow. Um, might be. I'm thinking about going back to school to study both th- theology and psychology, and want to see where kind of faith and mental health intersect. Um, but we'll see. Um, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, it's uh, my first and middle initial TP and the Danowski, D A N O W S K I. Um, I'm not as active on there as I used to uh, be. But then I also, um, same thing, I've got a Substack. I've written a few things. And, and maybe once uh, some of this brain fog clears up, I'll start writing a bit more. I enjoy writing. Uh, tpdanowski.substack.com. Um, hope to maybe share some of my photography there as well uh, in the future. But yeah, I think that's what's next. And uh, thank you so much. I really appreciate uh, you lending uh, me the space and lending your voice to this stuff as well. It's sorely needed. Of course, it's my pleasure. Happy to have you. I'm always happy to lend a platform to detransitioners who want to share their story on my podcast. And I'm especially grateful to have you with your interesting story and your beautiful heart that you've shared. So thank you so much. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast. To check out my book recommendations, articles, wellness products, guest episodes on other podcasts, consulting services, and lots more, visit sometherapist.com or follow me on Twitter or Instagram at sometherapist. If you'd like to go deeper, join my community at somekindoftherapist.locals.com. Members can dialogue with other listeners, post questions for upcoming podcast guests to respond to, or ask questions for me to respond to in exclusive members-only Q&A live streams. To learn more about the gender crisis, watch our film, No Way Back, The Reality of Gender-Affirming Care, at nowaybackfilm.com. Special thanks to my producers, Eric and Amber Beals at Different Mix, and to Joey Pecorero for our theme song, Half Awake. If you appreciate this podcast and want more people to find it, kindly take a moment to rate, review, like, comment, and share on your platforms of choice. Of course, just because I am some therapist doesn't mean I'm your therapist. This podcast is not a substitute for medical advice. If you need help, ask your doctor or browse your local therapists online. And whatever you do next, please take care of yourself. Eat well, sleep well, move your body, get outside, and tell someone you love them. 
you're worth it.